everybody, and welcome back to the Nap DC podcast. So today we are super excited because we have a woman up in these streets, and um, her name is May Elsa Danny, and she is an amazing lawyer here in Washington. She's going to be talking to us a little bit about Egypt and Syria. She has some really great insight, and I totally learned a whole bunch of stuff. So I am very excited about this. So of course we have to give you guys our little spiel about our events coming up for the month. So we have two actually, two events this month. And uh, one of them of course is the book club with Lena and um, it's going to be on December 13th and it's the normal times so at seven o'clock at Middle East Books and More. So it's going to be great fun. And the next event we have is at Chaco Shawarma. It's our holiday happy hour and it should be a lot of fun and it better be a lot of fun because I'm planning it. So (laughs) hopefully it will all turn out great. I know you guys are going to really enjoy it. It's a fun little place. It's got chocolate shawarma. I mean, what could be better? You got the best of both worlds there. So, you know, there's going to be shisha. There's going to be great food and um, amazing people you know, just drop on by. We'd love to see you guys and say hello and celebrate the holidays with you. So without further ado, please enjoy episode four with May Al-Sadani on the Nat DC podcast, and we will see you guys later. Happy holidays. Amr, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Yeah. Uh, So today, Lara and I are sitting down with my friend and colleague, May Sadani. Uh, May and I work together at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy, where May is a non-resident fellow. Uh, the reason we wanted to chat with her today is that she is very much involved in the Arab American community here in D.C., uh, which for obvious reasons kind of speaks to a lot of what we do at yeah. NAP. It's kind of in our name. So uh, we just want to sit down and chat with her a little bit today and get a sense for her view on what it means to be an Arab American and some of the activities that come with that. And and uh, how involved she is in, in the community here in D.C. So, Mai, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, both of you. Sure. We're glad we have a woman, a woman on this <laughs> yeah. podcast now. There's so. been a roaring demand. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Rightfully so. Yes, rightfully I so. think so. Yeah. You're well, a good first choice. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Hopefully yeah, I'm not let down. Uh, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Mai is the first person not from the food industry yeah. on the podcast as And well, I have so. no cooking skills whatsoever, so <laughs> I will let down many Arab <laughs> listeners. <laughs> but you're a bit of a foodie, I would say. You appreciate good food. Appreciate and yeah. cook are two different things. That's true. <laughs> very true. Yeah, very yeah. true. Um, okay, well, just start off. You want to tell us a little about yourself, what you do, what your life is like here in D.C.? Sure. Um, I'm Egyptian. I grew up in the U.S., but I was born in Egypt, so I moved here when I was a year old. And fast forward a lot of years later, and now I'm in D.C. It's my seventh year living in D.C., um, and I come from a... Middle East background, Middle East policy background, but that has merged kind of into the legal world, um, specifically international human rights law. Um, And on the side, I do a lot of uh, activism and community involvement related to both cultural and political stuff, mostly on Egypt and Syria, but sometimes in other realms as well. And is, I know you've worked on Egypt for quite some time. Is the Syria work something you've been interested in for a while or more recent? It's, as a human rights lawyer, it's, it's, the biggest human rights issue or one of the largest human rights issues facing the Middle East. And there isn't a lot of um, people talking about it from a human rights perspective, and there isn't a lot of engagement. With Egypt, I found that 
even everyday Americans have known Egypt for a long time. They think of the pyramids and they think of pharaohs, so there's a lot more like empathy almost. But with Syria, because it hasn't had a close relationship with the with the U.S., there isn't this understanding and there isn't even an awareness that it's one of the oldest heritages in the world. It's a country that has so much culture and, and that... Ba- that thing is a gap that I've seen in the activism even. For an American to go out and, and speak out on behalf of Syria, they kind of need that understanding that Syrians are humans too, which sure. is a little sad to say, but um, yeah. that's how I got into it, kind of. And a lot of my closest friends and loved ones are Syrians. So. Yeah. Right. So for Egypt, did how did the revolution impact um, the human rights standpoint? I'm not too familiar with uh, the politics of Egypt. Did, you know, Can you explain like if, like how that affected, I guess, human rights and whatnot in Egypt. Yeah, well, one of the most original demands of the revolution when people went out to the street in January 2011 was bread, freedom, social justice, and dignity. And dignity and social justice, and actually bread and freedom, all of those things are human rights, whether they're political or economic rights. So those are some of the earliest demands. And um, and people in a very organized manner felt went out to the streets and said, these are things that have been missing from our societies irrespective of what social class they were in, and these are things that they needed. And unfortunately, the fight is still ongoing. Like, a lot of policymakers will tell you, oh, the revolution in Egypt is over, or oh, there's nothing to see here. But in reality, there are so many passionate activists and human rights lawyers who continue to fight for that stuff. And that's one of the biggest blessings of my work, is getting to talk to those people, telling those their stories when I can, because people have kind of forgotten that the demands still exist and they haven't been fulfilled. And actually, Egypt is going through one of the worst uh, human rights crises in its modern history. So, yeah, yeah. It's serious stuff. And so, you know, obviously, we know you, you, you're you're a prominent Egypt expert here in DC, and, and some of that has to do with your background. But you know, at the same time, you're also an American citizen in the nation's capital at a time of what we could say is great challenge for both Arab Americans and Muslims. So it would be great to hear a little bit about you know, trans, translating what your, your passion and interest in Egypt and Syria into also being an Arab American and, and how do you view yourself as an Arab American, particularly here and, and during these times? Sure. I think at the heart of being an Arab American for me is the art of storytelling or telling your story. I think for too long, Arab Americans have not been able to rise up and take the mic, so to speak, and really tell their stories. People have been telling our stories for so long. Um, For example, I started wearing hijab when I was 14. And before that, I was just like a blonde, vaguely European-looking girl who could easily blend in. I don't look Middle Eastern um, without a scarf. Um, and, And that's how it was. I was very quiet and stuff. When I decided to wear the scarf, I realized that people were looking at me and making assumptions about me. And if I stayed silent, the person walking down the street might think, like, oh, this woman, her dad forced her to wear that thing. Or, oh, like, you know, like, ridiculous things like that. So wearing hijab actually, like aside from its religious value, kind of put me on this personal and professional trajectory Mm -hmm. that made me realize that I needed to speak up for myself and tell my story, tell the stories of remarkable Arab Americans and Arab women and men who are around me, who've like influenced all of us, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what drove me into both human rights law and also activism, this need to tell the story and this need for us to tell our own stories instead of having other people tell those stories. So for me, being in the nation's capital is really an opportunity and a privilege, and it's also a responsibility. Like, we have the access to go to our congressmen and our lobbyists, our lobby, um, 
and to lobby for issues that we care about. We have the privilege and the responsibility and the right to write op-eds and letters to the editor and to speak out and to participate even in podcasts and things like this. Mm -hmm. Like you have, we have so many opportunities to speak and to tell our stories and to make our stories the one that are are heard instead of someone who knows nothing about me saying, this is what Arab women are like, you know? So I think that's at the heart of of everything I personally choose to do, whether it's human rights work or, mm. or activism, and and it's the biggest and most defining like aspect to me of what being an Arab American and an Arab is. Do you find that being a woman in the activist realm is uh, is harder than being a man? I mean, do you see it as like you know something like an empowering kind of thing? Like I'm a woman, hear me roar, you know? <laughs> or is it like you know, is it a hindrance? I mean, I don't know. I think about it's the activist realm. I think it's empowering, and I think it gives you the chance to to do a lot of different sure. things and meet a lot of different people, and it opens a lot of doors for you. Right. When I first moved to D.C., I was often one of the only women in most meetings that I went right. to, mm-hmm. especially as I worked at a think tank earlier, sure. and certainly one of the only women wearing hijab like for miles to be right. seen. So that, with it, came a lot of privilege. People were always interested and also, like, suspicious of what you were going to say but then you can shatter so many misperceptions when you speak and and for a lot of women who um look arab or who identify as arab um i think we're often expected to be a certain way but at the same time that makes it so much more fun to destroy people's perceptions and to shatter stereotypes i feel like that's my hobby is just to like make jokes and like be like, well, um, yeah. maybe you shouldn't have that assumption yeah. about me. Exactly. <laughs> you're very good at that. Um, but speaking, you. speaking of things you're very good at, you know, so born out of that, born out of your perception of being Arab American and and your you know personal investment in, in these issues happening in the region, how does that translate to what you do on a day-to-day, right? Because I know that you're involved in all kinds of stuff. You work with us as a non-resident fellow. You recently started an organization, not a bystander. So... How does that translate both professionally and personally, and how do you prioritize? Um, well, it's also a privilege of being a woman is that you're such a good multitasker. Exactly. So I can- <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm-, <laughs> well, okay. I'm definitely not a good multitasker. So. No, I'm teasing, but it's definitely it's tough. You're always balancing different things. For me, um, I always try to make it so that my professional life is just as rewarding as my personal life. So I try to pursue opportunities that are going to give back to me or that I feel are tied directly to my interests. Um, but at the same time, it's not always that way, right? Sometimes you're sitting at a desk writing a report yeah. and you don't want to do that report. And instead you would be, rather be out protesting or like meeting with your congressman and telling sure. them no Muslim ban. Like there's there's always a balance and I'm sure every individual has to sort of assess that. But for me, I, I look for the opportunities where I think based on my skills and my background, I can actually contribute. So for Egypt, I try to focus, for example, like my, my background is in law and I went to law school. I try to focus on just addressing legal issues or talking about human rights law because that's a saturated field and there are so many smart people in it and I respect what they're doing so there's Mm -hmm. no need for me to repeat what they're doing. I try to find the opportunities where maybe I have access to a human rights lawyer I know in Egypt and I know his story isn't getting out so that's something that I can do. I can use my privilege to tell his story in English, to write an article about him, to sort of take those opportunities. So I think most people in their fields have a good sense of what's already being done and what isn't and the hope is that there's so many of us and we have so many different skills and talents and we can all complement each other we don't have to compete for the same spaces and for um 
activism, there's obviously a lot of causes I care about, but right now focusing mostly on Egypt and Syria. And with Syria, like to tie it back, like I was saying, um, one of the things we noticed is that so, there are two things. So Americans maybe don't know what Syria is. So that's something I try to work on with my work through the Syrian Cultural House, which is a nonprofit that does um, cultural diplomacy and public diplomacy. So they try to... Um, introduce Syrian culture and Syrian people to everyday people and that's sort of the link that's missing in a lot of activism right. so things like food events movie events right. um, music yes, events a big festival recently right that we was like did two months ago here in DC Syria? the Syria, Syria Fest, Fest. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. so we were so blessed to have a team of like 20 people who spent their entire summer working on this crazy idea we had <laughs> and I have to say that this $38,000 or $40,000 festival, we started off with wow. $400 in our budget. So that's also crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but to be an activist, you kind of have to dream and you have to yeah. have big dreams. So thanks to the remarkable like head of the uh, committee and the, co- and the co-chairs there, we were able to bring together a team of people who, who realized that this is something that was missing, that people really didn't know what Syria is, and so it made it so hard. So um, we worked on putting together this cultural festival uh, that would be open all day, free to the public. It would showcase food, music, art, um, and it, would, it was in Freedom Plaza, but most importantly, in my opinion, just right outside of Trump Tower, which oh was very God, symbolic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it. it was remarkable. Honestly, like not to toot my own horn because, like I was saying, it's twenty people. Of but course. it was remarkable to, to. At one point, I got up on the stage and I was looking at a whirling dervish do a performance, and there were thousands of people standing around him. And Trump Tower was in the background, and I thought, wow. this is what it means <laughs> to resist. And a mentor yeah. of mine says it was um, like symbolic and beautiful and, and uh, peaceful resistance. Right. Yeah. And to me, like. We can do so much, in my opinion, by sharing our stories. And that's what I mean by the power of telling those stories. Because the 10,000 people who came throughout that day are going to remember that whirling dervish. Or they're going to remember the Syrian refugee they spoke to at a booth that said, speak to a Syrian. Or they're going to remember the book that they picked up. So those things really make a difference in people's lives. So when we're able to identify gaps in mm-hmm. the work that we do, mm-hmm. I think we can be much more productive in our work and sure. effective. Yeah, and I imagine moments like that are the ones that kind of keep you going in an otherwise very long slog that doesn't have a lot of motivation to, to keep at it. Exactly. Like, hu- human rights issues, are there are going to be violations for the rest of our lives. And I hate to say that because we're human rights lawyers and we're always working to make the world a better place, but the reality is there will be dictators in the world. Mm-hmm. There will be people who don't respect your right to freedom and dignity. There will be people who will violate your rights. And so there's a there's a duty on all of us, whether we are working on a legal from a legal perspective or a media perspective or an activist perspective to fight against um, those things. But really, the positive uh, scenes that we get to see are what make it all worth it. Like the whirling dervish scene that I was sure. talking about. Like the time when I heard for the first time the voice of one of the one of the um, detainees that I was lucky to advocate on his behalf and I had never heard his voice before because he had been in prison the two years that that we were working on his case and then I woke up one morning after he had been released and I had a voice note from him just that moment of hearing his voice as a free man like those things are remarkable things that are blessings that get sent to us as activists and and actors in these fields that keep us going and I think if you want to look for positive um 
positives in the world, you'll find them everywhere, whether it's the remarkable coalition building that happened after the Muslim ban and Mm -hmm. all those people, everyday people went to the airports to protest. Lawyers went to provide free services. There's just so much beauty in the world. And sometimes we get bogged down because the news is so negative and because the reality is it's no joke, obviously, but there are beautiful people and there are so many people working, um, to better the situation of people in their families, in their immediate communities around the world. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the keys, um, bringing it back to doing this side of work, is to surround yourself with people who believe and who will constantly keep you going. Sure. And so let's talk a little bit about the election, obviously, the presidential election. You know, you and I have been Egypt watchers for a long time. We've, we've watched it enter sort of one of the darkest periods in human rights ever. And it's very frustrating and whatever. Uh, and so we've, you know, last November we entered, I wouldn't say a similar period, but we entered a, a period where it seemed like a lot of infringement on human rights and democracy was happening here with the current administration. How did you feel about that? And, and how did you make the shift from sort of, okay, I've been doing all these things for Egypt all this time and now it's happening here, particularly as an Arab American? You know, how did you go about that? I think it's it wasn't easy. I remember that once the news had settled, maybe it was the day or the day after, was January 25th, which is the Egyptian Revolution anniversary day. And I thought... I was with you at a protest. Yes, we were at a protest that day, I was going to tell you. Um, but it's not easy. It's not easy fighting for both of your homes in my heart. It's like I was spending all this time fighting for Egypt, and now you also have to fight to keep the values and the beautiful things about the U.S. alive. Um, But at the same time, we have experience in it, so I guess we're set. (laughs) No, but um, I think, like I said, everyone has their skill set and their things to contribute. Um, For example, most of my time I I still give to international causes because I speak Arabic and I have this background and the skill set, but at the same time now we make extra time to go to protests on the weekend or to call my members of Congress if there is an issue like DACA or TPS or any of these really important issues that affect people in our community to build coalitions with other communities. Like It's just remarkable how supportive the Latino community um, has been in the aftermath of the election. They've come together and to support the Muslim and the Arab American communities like no other. At all the Muslim ban protests, you'll see how beautiful it is to see so much solidarity. Um, so I think it's just a matter of applying the skills and the and the time that we have and just dedicating some of that to the U.S. Because at the end of the day, this is our country and it's given us so much. And I know as an American, I want to see it preserve all the beautiful things that were the reason that my parents came here in the first place and brought me as a young child. And I know that that's what I want to see for my country, the country that has given me an education and given me all these opportunities, allowed me to work in the nation's capital, despite the fact that I'm wearing hijab and I'm clearly Arab American, given me so much privilege and opportunity. So I'm going to fight for it just like I fight for my other home. And to me, those things aren't mutually exclusive. You can do both. So what like advice would you give for someone like me or someone who isn't like normally an activist per se, like out in the streets and whatnot? Do you have any tips for people who would want to you know, donate to causes or to be like, you know, in, you know, protesting in the streets. Do you have any like tips basically? Like how would they get started in doing it? Or they just kind of dive right in or what would they do? It really depends on what sort of, what sort of, um, cause 
you that calls out to you most. Sure. There are so many like local groups. If you look up on Meetup or Indivisible, which is an organizing group, or Amnesty International, if you want to go, there are local groups that are based in your neighborhood. In fact, that have like five to ten people that meet regularly, that plan events, that will notify each other when there are events. There is an awesome network called the Washington. Um, Peace Center that does like a resistance newsletter that sends out a newsletter every two weeks that tells you the big DACA and immigration and and Planned Parenthood like things that are happening that gives you an opportunity to sort of see what's going on. There are all these phenomenal um, trainings. If you're interested in doing um, non-violent action, um, Greenpeace does free trainings for people that you can just sign up for and go for a few hours. Interesting. on social media, if you look up like the certain groups involved, ACLU, um, uh, Amnesty, all these groups have action alerts. You can sign up depending on what issue calls out to you most, and they'll make it really simple for you. They'll give you, if you want to call your congressman, they'll give you the phone number, they'll give right. you a script and talking points. So there are, once you are ready to sort of become an everyday activist, and I think we all should be because this is our country and this these are issues we care about, there are definitely organizations that will walk you through it, that have infographs explaining complicated legislation, that um, tell you when there is an event coming up. D.C., is, you think that D.C., because it's the nation's capital and everyone is always dressed up in suits and going to happy hour, that it's not an activist city, but it has a beautiful activist scene. Oh, so many trainings, so many protests. If you go to the White House and there's a protest, multiple protests going on <laughs> yeah. at the same time. And that's that's something that's continued to go on. But I think one thing, one positive thing that we've seen after this election is that, is that there's more organization and more coalition building. So now for the first time ever, the Muslim and Arab communities are reaching out to the Latin communities, to the black communities, and they're working together because right. they're re- they finally realize that the only way we can keep America as beautiful as it always has been is to work together and sort of remind people what it means to be an American. Yeah, I think that's very well beautiful. said and very important too. <laughs> yeah, beautiful thing. Definitely solidarity initiatives are incredibly important and haven't really been there in the past. So to the extent that, you know, Arab Americans and Black Americans, Latino Americans can join forces and, and understand that they're on the same side. I think that's that can really be a game changer. Um, totally. And sort of connected to that, I wanted to ask you, what do you see as major challenges to Arab Americans uh, today? I mean, so we talked a lot about solidarity. It seems like that's moving forward. But what are some other major challenges that you see to advancing Arab American rights right now? And how could those be addressed? I think um, being more engaged on the congressional level and in government, we're seeing more and more, like definitely in the seven years since I've moved to D.C., more and more Arabs are working on the Hill, they're working in the White House and the State Department, but it's still not enough. There's still a lot of uh, pressure from many family members back home that tell you, why aren't you a doctor or an engineer or this or that, you know, like very few people say like go be a think tanker or like why don't you stop for someone on the hill making like $40,000 you know like no one is pushing their kids to do that doesn't matter matter. (laughs) you need to get married (laughs) yeah so I think there's a lot of things that we can do as a community to encourage people getting more involved in politics and it doesn't all have to be in political jobs but even more political leadership programs for kids in the summer where they can come to DC and learn how government works scholarships that encourage and allow people who maybe are going into fields that maybe 
financially less rewarding to pursue their careers and to get a better education and to have access to that stuff. Um, congressional internship and congressional fellowship programs. A lot of the older minority communities like the Asian American community, black American community have phenomenal fellowship programs where they supplement the stipend of someone who's a first year or second year fellow working on the Hill to encourage them to work more. We need, we need things like that for our Arab community because otherwise we're going to continue to be underrepresented and we're not going to be part of the decision-making process. Congressmen are not going to have an Arab in their office who are telling them these are the issues that are important to my community. So I think that's really important. I think also Arab American organizations that exist should work more, like we were saying, to coalition build because they will be stronger together. We're a small minority and we'll be stronger if we're pushing for things like, for example, temporary protected status, an immigration issue that affects Syrians and Yemenis, but also affects Hondurans and Haitians. Like if we were all working together, those are 350,000 people who get TPS rather than the like 1,000 Syrians or right. this or that. Right. Yeah. And I don't know the exact number, so I shouldn't say 1,000, but whatever yeah. number it is, it's smaller yeah. than the than the land countries sure. that are getting it. Um, so I think coalition building is important for that. I think just encouraging people in our community still to go out and rock the vote. AAI does a great job of doing that, I know, mm -hmm. but they're still Arab Americans are not voting to their full potential. Um, getting involved in campaigns. A lot of Arab Americans have never worked on a campaign before. They're not used to knocking on doors. They don't know what a PAC is, like getting organized around um, financial contributions, meeting with your congressman, asking for meetings. As constituents, we have the right to call up our congressman and say, I want to meet with you about this issue. Right. And a lot of Arab Americans aren't taught or encouraged to do that. So I think there's a lot of um, political awareness that we can do for our communities to make them um, much stronger. And I think to address your question, the challenge is is not getting our story told, and that all relates to us taking initiative. Because no one is going to give you the mic and say, please right. tell us who you are, Arab American, or what's important to you. We have to take it ourselves. I think that's very well said. And I, and I like how basically you started off telling us that that's why you got into this, right? You wanted to tell your story, and you felt like that story wasn't being told. So I'm kind of going all the way back around and bringing that, bringing that back up. And this is very well said. Oh, thank you, guys. Well, May, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was amazing. Having you. Yeah, I'm enlightened great. because I know nothing about the activist realm, so I am so excited about this. Oh, I hope you'll join the dark side. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will be back next month. See you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for listening. Please feel free to subscribe and to follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook page.